Hello and welcome to Deb and Friends Quest for Connection podcast. I am Deb Bowen, the anchor host for this uh, podcast adventure where we talk in many different ways about how we connect and connect to each other. I am delighted to have with me as my co-host this week for an exciting adventure in looking at Gaia, uh, my lovely friend Kimberly Fox Kaufman, my friend Joel Hawkins, and my friend Susan Bollinger. So we are so happy to be with all of you. Welcome to the three of you. Thank, Thank you. you, Deb. Hey. <laughs> okay, good. And so, folks, we are talking this week about Gaia the goddess, Gaia a scientific principle, Gaia as, Gaia as a spiritual concept, and Gaia as the earth herself. For the past two weeks, as you know, if you're a regular listener to Quest and Connection, uh, we have been talking about star beings. So we have been far, far away in galaxies far beyond our own, and we're bringing it way back down literally to Earth this week. So sit back and enjoy this hour as we look at the concept of Gaia from so many different directions. So, Kimberly, will you start us off with some definitions, please? Yes. So I guess we'll start with the Gaia principle, also known as the Gaia hypothesis or the Gaia theory, which poses that living organisms interact with their inorganic surroundings on Earth to form synergistic, synergistic and self-regulating complex systems that help maintain and perpetuate the conditions for life on the planet. This hypothesis was formulated by the chemist James Lovelock and co-developed by microbiologist Lynn Margulis back in the 1970s. So essentially, after all of that scientific wording, um, it basically means that it is a small little blue orb floating through space that can self-regulate because of all of the pieces and all of the parts that exist here, both living and non-living. And I think that that's really important when we're talking about Gaia in general, and we'll, we'll go more into that, of course, but I think it's really important that we understand that interconnectivity, that, that scientific and spiritual aspect of how we're all connected. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good because we're having a talk about that. <laughs> and, well, and it's exactly that. You know, for me, one of the notions of connection is how science and spirituality come together. And for me, in the Gaia principle, they do that. Um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, that notion of science and spirit in, in just a few minutes. But uh, Susan, if I could ask you to talk about the semantics and the language of, of the theory and the concept would be great. Sure, sure. And, and that's one of the things that I was going to talk about or at least touch on a little bit too, Deb, was, was the merging of those two lenses, the lens of science, which is one of the lenses that we look at the world through, and then we also have the lens of spirit or intuition. And I'm really lucky to have lived long enough to see those two lenses get closer and closer together. It just excites me so much when this happens. I was listening to um, the radio yesterday, and I heard this wonderful story about how science is 
finally able to explain acupuncture. It's something that has been around for thousands of years and in the medical community, which I've been a part of for so long, has been absolutely ridiculed and poo-pooed. And now researchers can actually identify in scientific terms how it physiologically works in the human body. I just get so jazzed up when I hear that. And there is no, <laughs> there is no doubt in my mind that more and more of what has always been considered as fringe practices and unexplainable beliefs and things that are outside of traditional scientific understanding will one day be validated when looked at through that lens. The scientific lens, I think we all know, involves the establishing of a hypothesis and then designing the experiment to try and prove by collecting data that can be reliably reproduced again and again through carefully documented experimentation and then turned at that point, I think, and then it becomes uh, a theory. The lens of spirit, obviously, generally involves much less tangible data. Um, because these are things that can't yet be quantified. Uh, things like intuition, uh, perception, uh, you'll hear it described as a sixth sense. We all have gut feelings, symbols that have meaning, things that happen to us or to someone we know that defies quote-unquote explanation. So living in both of those worlds as we do, I think what most of us end up doing is developing a way where we can blend, excuse me, where we can blend those two lenses. What we know is fact, and then yet what we somehow know or feel on an intuitive level to also be true. The Gaia theory or principle that we're talking about today is one of those areas. And I only say that because although it makes the utmost common sense to me, it's not yet completely uh, embraced in the scientific world because they're still having to go through all those steps of proving and denying and examining. And, and that's what they do, and that's okay. We need that too. Um, but in this process, when we're talking about these concepts as we view them through two different lenses, we have to be aware that we're using words and phrases that have different meanings depending on the topic and the discipline through which we're looking at them because they're formal semantics and then there are conceptual semantics. And so the actual meaning or implication of a particular word or phrase that we say here today may vary depending on the context. Which lens are we using? Spoken language 
is very limiting when it comes to that spiritual lens or that esoteric context, if you will. Language, and I think probably English in particular, has a reputation for this as very solid. It's very concrete. But these ideas that we have and that we're talking about are much more um, liquid or maybe even gaseous, if you will. They're harder to express. And so that's why we struggle sometimes when we're trying to explain these things because we're, we're having to find that, that language, that best, best language which is so concrete to convey our thoughts that are not always that, that solid, that, that hard, that tangible. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, and, and, and perhaps maybe um, we can give some examples of that. Uh, in just a, a minute, too, and I know you've got some. Okay, good. Uh, but and, and I also want to uh, come back to, as, as you are weighing in on the, the didactic and the um, scientific perspective of, of the terminology, I also will want to come back and talk about where the, the concept of Gaia comes from. So I want to talk a little bit about mythology. Uh, here in just a minute, but maybe before I do that, give us an example of the language and the semantics you're talking about. Okay, okay. Well, I think maybe the prime example um, that we're going to run into today that we use differently than much of the scientific community is the word itself, energy. When we're in spirit mode, we're not talking about it in strictly scientific terms such as kinetic energy or potential energy or or some kind of a force that can be measured in do you remember ergs and joules from physical science class and I, yes, <laughs> I thank you for no, that flashback <laughs> we don't we don't measure the kind of energy we're going to be talking about in those in those terms at least not yet. I think one day there will be a way to, to capture and, me- and measure it, but, but science just isn't there yet. So when we use the word energy through our lens today of the Gaia principle, we're generally meaning something that is sensed or felt, either physically or psychically. Um, maybe it could be construed as life energy although there's no universally accepted definition for that word either, life. We talk about, just to kind of get us in the realm of how we're talking about this word, we talk about feeling another person's energy. We talk about being able to walk into a room and kind of feel what's going on or sense what's going on there. You're sensing the energy of the people in that room or the energy that was left behind because energy has a signature. Energy has an effect. Not only do we have that energy, but plants have this energy. Animals have this energy. And the earth has this energy. I think of, I was thinking when I was thinking about this this morning I was thinking about the rocks and the crystals because so far I've just talked about things that we commonly think of as being alive rocks and crystals have an energy of their own it's not just gravitational energy or heat of energy but there's a vibrational energy 
And Deb, I know quantum physics is one of your favorite areas. Quantum physics tells us that everything vibrates. Vibrations travel in waves and behave differently in different circumstances. Think about music. Different vibrations account for different pitches. So anything that vibrates has an energy. We each have our own individual vibration, our own individual energy, and so does everything else. So, and so if you take whole, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if you take the whole the quantum physics pr- perspective, everything vibrates. Therefore, everything is energy. Right? right. Right. And the whole world is loaded with this life and this vibration and all this energy. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking today about Gaia and her energy is all these total combined energies of the whole system. Wow. And so that's a lot. <laughs> you know, it, it is really a lot. It, it is huge. because it is huge. And you know, it's partly huge I think because we who live mostly in the metaphysical world think about think about um, energy in the in the metaphysical terms that that you're talking about well i don't necessarily think about it in terms of e equals m c square and whatever and einstein you know but there but there it is so um let me talk a minute about Gaia and then joel i want about you to weigh in because I want to I want to kind of swing the pendulum if I can here a minute and take us to mythology or not but certainly that's how it's <laughs> but that's how well but that's how it's couched you know right um, right so um, okay so Gaia was goddess before there was anything goddess Gaia in Greek mythology was before there was form in any place, in any way, before there was places. Gaia is life. Uh, She is the very essence of Earth because she is Earth. She created Earth. She still inhabits the planet. She still um, moves and breathes with and nurtures and nourishes this planet and all the beings that are on it. Uh, Gaia also was, uh, in Greek mythology, the primordial deity. She was the ancestral mother of all life. She was the parent of Uranus, and then she bore the Titans and many of the Olympian gods and giants and primordial sea gods. In Roman mythology, in the Roman pantheon, her equivalent is Terra, T-E-R-R-A, from which we get the word terrestrial, of course. Uh, so Gaia really was that energy, that, that goddess energy that's beyond our comprehension that created all that is, that everything that was. And she still lives and cares for and is in and of herself the earth. So if you look at uh, the mythology of Gaia and look at um, how she 
is that earth-nurturing being and is alive. It is from that concept that we get the notes uh, from Lovelock and his idea about how the earth became a living, breathing, breathing being. So I'll stop there. And Joel, if you would weigh in, that would be great. Oh, sure, sure. Just as sort of a, a segue, looking at it from a parallel of, of still kind of looking at the metaphysical side of this and, and Gaia as a living being, I think there's some kind of an interesting analogies that you could draw. So before we get into any just little facts about the Earth itself, kind of begin to think about, so for instance, the Earth or Gaia's geothermal activity, very similar to our food-to-energy cycle. And think about the movement of the continental plates as kind of like our densest matter of moving the muscles and the bones. And her lakes and rivers and streams and oceans carrying nourishment is very similar to our circulatory system. Uh, her fresh and saltwater marsh systems are similar to our lymph systems. And, of course, her winds would be similar to our breath. So just start to think about those analogies as we begin to look at her more as a living being and less as just a planet that's out there scientifically floating around, but, but that there could be potentially uh, that, that magic there. So just as a thought. But, you know, the one thing I wanted to do that I always think is kind of fun is get just a little geeky for a minute um, as we're talking about um, the <laughs> Earth and share a few facts that I just find absolutely amazing. And it kind of helps, I think, as we get to a point of summary of potentially how we can help or how we're potentially impacting. It gives you some, some perspective. But let's start, you know, first of all, you, people look at the planet just as this big blob floating around, really not considering it just from the point where we stand, the vastness of our planet and how it's really broken up. And you have your layers, which most people think of the crust and the, which our physical part that we stand on or what's immediately under our oceans, our mantle and our core um, of the planet. And when you think about the crust, 70% of it is under oceans. So 70% of our Earth's surface is under ocean, which is, or really underwater would be the safest thing to say. And that which is underwater is probably about three and a half miles thick. And that which is our continental crust or our physical terra firma, so to speak, is about 25 miles thick underneath the various continents. And then you hit the mantle. That's about 1,800 miles thick. Now, some people will break it down to like an, an upper or lower mantle as you get closer to the, the core. Um, but just imagining that really 1,800 miles is all that separates us, you know, 25 miles underneath the physical continents, and then you're hitting the mantle, um, and then 1,800 miles under that before you start hitting the outer core. So it's not really that much. I think it total is like eight miles in diameter the planet is in itself um, and about 25,000 miles around. So it just kind of starts to give you like, you know, a little bit of Gray's Anatomy about your planet, if you will. It's within the crust that we find all of our rocks and minerals. It's, it's just above the crust. Um, 
at the higher levels of the crust into the atmosphere that we have the biosphere. Um, and that is the, all that we consider self-sustaining and self-balancing. So all of that activity occurs at the higher ends of the lithosphere or of the crust up into the atmosphere, the, the, about 10 miles up into the atmosphere, that, that all this life is self-regulating around the planet. If, you, if you're first looking at all the depth of the planet and then looking at that one marginal band that goes all the way around our planet, isn't that amazing? That all life is sustained within that band, theoretically. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It, it is. You know, we really are that blue marble floating out in space that, that wonderful iconic picture that uh, that NASA took. You know, we, we really are just that that blue marble, and we really um, are so incredibly connected, in my belief. You know, I um, you know when I teach, uh, and I know Susan, you do this too, uh, and I'm, I'm sure all four of us do actually. When we teach a course and we invite our students to uh, ground and imagine that the roots come from their feet and connect to all the trees and all the world around them underneath the earth and that everything is connected somewhere deep within the, the earth's crust. That's really my image of, mm-hmm. of how I see it so connected. Yeah, I just do. Um, you know, when I was a traditional teacher in a classroom, I used to teach the cybernetics concept of systems theory and the definition that I used for system was the following. A system is a dynamic order of parts and processes standing in mutual interaction. And when you can conceptualize the earth itself and, and see, my, my lexicon is the earth herself, because I do think of her as Gaia. <clears throat> if you can conceptualize earth as a system in which all of those parts and all of the processes, like oxygenation, for example, or flowing rivers, um, and all the parts, the earth, the rocks, the people, the four-legged swimming, two-legged, whatever folks, everything is connected. If you can, can imagine that, working in perfect order, if that system is in perfect order, then we describe that as being in a state of homeostasis. When a system falls out of homeostasis for whatever reason, um, pollution, for example, then we move in what is called an entropic direction. So we speak of the earth as being in um, heading towards in, uh, in, in an entropic direction heading towards an end of, of a system because that's what stops a system from existing. So, so for me, a part of the idea of the Gaia concept is that stewardship that we as the two-legged members of this planet have a responsibility for the care and nurturing of this planet. And perhaps here in just a minute after the break, 
uh, we can, can talk more about that. And Joel, I certainly want to hear more from you about, uh, about the stone people as well. Sure. So comments before we go to break from anybody? Okay. Then, then let's do that. Let's tell people who we are and we'll move along. You are listening to Deb and Friends Quest for Connection, and I am Deb Bowen, the anchor host of this weekly podcast where we seek connection with each other and the worlds around us. My co-hosts this week are Susan Bollinger, Joel Hawkins, and Kimberly Fox Kaufman. You can connect with us in many different ways. Uh, This podcast airs every week on Blog Talk Radio, on iTunes. It is uploaded to YouTube at some point during the week. You can also find us on our Facebook page, which is Deb and Friends Quest for Connection. You can find us on my website, which is debbowen.com. And you can uh, go to our Facebook page, and see ways in which you can connect with each of us individually if you have questions of any of us or comments or want to shoot us an email or um, learn about the services that we offer. So we're always, always, always happy to hear from you and are so grateful for the many of you that we have heard from. And we certainly hope that you will continue to connect with us in all these different ways. Kimberly, why don't you tell folks a little bit what you've got going on? All right. Uh, So as some of the the listeners know, I am a soul spirit animal reader. I offer ways to actually uh, discover and explore the uh, energetic signature that you are in form of animal. And you can get in touch with me to set up your soul spirit animal appointment by texting or calling my number, which is 910-759-4557, or emailing me uh, by typing in foxlantern at yahoo.com. Thank you so very much. And folks, I teach a lot of classes. I periodically offer in-depth intuitive readings and a lot of other services. And you can see those on my website. Again, it's debbowen.com. So two Bs, D-E-B-B-O-W-E-N.com. And would love to have you uh, check out what I do as well. There's a lot going on on my website these days. And Susan and Joel don't have anything going on right now, but you can certainly connect with them by email. Joel, tell us your email address. Uh, you can reach me at thebewitchingearth at gmail.com. Thebewitchingearth at gmail.com. There you go, Joel Hawkins. And Susan? I can be reached at mouseboots, M-O-U-S-E-B-O-O-T-S, 53, at gmail.com. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Yay. Thank you all so very much. Whew. Okay. So let's get back to talking about this Gaia uh, concept here. Uh, Joel, you want to weigh in a little bit here for us on on your thoughts and um, kind of where we are with Earth energy? Well, one thing, I, there were a couple of things um, that Susan mentioned that I just wanted to go back to um, and acknowledge. One of them, her description of energy um, 
having a cause and effect, which I think that's a signature and effect, I believe, were the exact words she used. And I thought that was a great description. I just wanted to throw that in. Often we forget that analogy as a, as a good way to sum up different kinds of energy, having a signature and effect. So I did like that. Um, the one thing I did want to mention really quick as well as it relates to minerals and the earth and life or Gaia and life is, you know, there's a common theory that that the presence of our minerals is part of that whole hemostasis. They, they had to be in place because they were the only thing that really provided a surface to organize as a template for life, if you will. Without the minerals, there was no surface for that to occur because everything was gaseous, right, liquid and gas. So it was minerals that first gave us our surfaces, and that's what provided that stepping stone, if you will, for the spark and physical form of life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting theory that's out there um, regarding that. I, I forget the gentleman's name who's currently working on that. I'll try to send you some information on it, but it does make for good reading. Um, but it, but but again, it's the theory, not not terribly accepted by everyone, but by a great number, it's beginning to be. So that's one of the things that I wanted to to mention there. The other thing that I wanted to mention is. With regard to minerals and and the homostasis that exists with the planet, minerals, you know, we often look at them, the, the first qualification for being a mineral is being inorganic from a standpoint that it wasn't created from an animal, so to speak, or something organic, that it was created by a system or process. But when you're thinking about the system or processes that created minerals, the interesting thing to know is, is that minerals do replicate just like other life cells. They they replicate over and over and over on their surfaces, which I think it starts, it's one of those things that starts to bring you into that definition of life, what really constitute life. Is it the ability to replicate and exactly to what degree, whether it's been historically considered inorganic or organic? And, and that ties back to the second thing that you mentioned, Susan, that I just wanted to, to throw out there I thought was a good point to follow up on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But with regard to the minerals as a whole, I can't, I'm not sure of how they're reacting to what may or may be going on to the planet. I often wonder if if it's just an amplification of what may, may be occurring. There was I recently had a conversation with Dale um, and Samantha from the Psychic Teacher Show as well, and we were talking a little bit about it. And I wondered is you know, if you think about the minerals on the planet and the things that are happening on the planet, how are they reacting or are they affected? Is from a medical, physical standpoint, are they potentially just amplicating what's going on in sort of an odd way? On the, on the same token, could that not be something leveraged for us to help heal her? Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting, Joel, as you talk about that? Because you and I have had the conversation that I sometimes worry about how much we're digging into the earth's surface and pulling stones out. Some of them, I mean, we've seen gigantic quartz crystals coming out of the earth and, and, even, and even small pieces of, of whatever. And, and I almost have this image in my head of that somewhere in the earth, is this linchpin stone. And when it gets pulled out, the earth crust will implode. I don't like 
<laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna turn ourselves inside out, you know. <laughs> well, I you know I worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I can see why. I, that's crossed my mind too. I, I've also wondered, and I think I remember asking Joel one time some number of years ago: Are 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 we actually traumatizing the minerals that we harvest when we go in and we take them out of their environment? Are we stopping their replication by changing their environment and exposing them to light and a different quality of air and different temperatures, different moisture levels? And I would say yes, because we, that, that impact occurs wherever we go in. And in every ecosystem that we enter, we alter it. The interesting yes. thing about minerals is they evolve. There are minerals that are specific to human activity. So there are minerals that only grow in certain types of waste dumps as a result of what man has done, but yet these minerals evolve and are created. Existing minerals today that have been in place for millions and millions of years have evolved as a result of introduction to other chemicals and chemical processes in the grow system. Um, I read about an interesting article a long time ago about calcite being stored in museum drawers had a chemical reaction to the oak in the drawers and it altered the calcite. Mm. Wow. So, so the interesting thing is, is minerals do evolve um, and there are minerals that are specific to our activity on the planet. They now are a result of us. I think out of an estimated 5,000 plus minerals, let's say, uh, thousands of them are a result of having evolved with humans, believe it or not. That makes sense. So yeah, we do have an impact. But wouldn't it also be neat to consider that, and, and this was kind of the conversation that Dale and I were having briefly, was there is this sort of spiritual genius that exists, and wouldn't it be interesting if literally the accessibility that we have to the minerals today with what we know and, and what we're able to reach, that it is to be able, the very thing that seems at one hand like we could decimate the planet is also the thing that could potentially save it by us using them as tools for healing her as opposed to uh, advancing technologies to a degree. But in some cases, that may even help, as Kimberly will point out a little later. True. You know, I had a, a, a young friend visit me last week, and um, she was saying, you know, maybe there is something to this uh, crystal stuff that all, all of my older mentors uh, believe in and I've rolled my eyes at for, for some years. She said, I, I just learned they have something to do with, like, radios. <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction, too. Uh, so Somebody had, I mean, everybody has their first time of learning something, you know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so I stopped laughing. I tried very hard to stop laughing because you're right. I mean, because I'm old enough to, to know about crystals and radios because I used to have a transistor radio sitting on the beach, you know, 50 years ago. So, uh, but she didn't. That was new to her. And, and so we had some conversation about, about that. Um, and I think that it is kind of like we do come full circle sometimes in, in our learning about uh, the stone people. And, I, and even though, Joel, your description is inorganic, but they're still living, right? 
some, some believe they are by virtue of the fact that they do replicate. Um, they have a self-replicating process and they continue to grow and they can evolve. Um, we just have to learn to separate what is the geological organic and inorganic from the spiritual organic or inorganic, if you will. Yeah. I, I hear that. And you know, as we're talking, Joe, honey, I am seeing my old truck, you know. <laughs> and you know where this is, Joel knows where this is going because, you know, I I loved my old truck. My mama told me I love my truck too much. And mama said, you know, she is inanimate. And I said, oh, no, she is not inanimate. She is as alive to me as you are. And And did that truck and I have real or not, right. it's certainly real to me, a perceived energy and a connection. I was so poor back in the days that I drove her, I would say, uh, her name was Miss P, and that's a whole different story, folks, but I would pat her on the dashboard and I'd say, Miss Honey, Miss P, honey, you got to fix yourself because we don't have any money to fix whatever's making that funky noise. And it stopped. <laughs> Is that not a true story, Joel? <laughs> so... So, you know, um, and do I go out on my deck and and touch and and speak to and feel the the life on every tree in my yard? Of course, you know, I do. Um, so I, it's hard for me to think of something as not being alive. I tend right, to go right. the, the other way, you know, I really do. And so when I see um, the decimation, that is happening to this planet it, and, and wondering how that spirit or that energy of Gaia, aside from the science, but from the spirit side of it, would, must feel about that. And then I'll, I'll just say one more thing and then I'll stop. And Kimberly, I'll throw it back to you then. But I believe it was Julia Butterfly Hill, the amazing woman who spent more than a year uh, living in the red oak, uh, not red oak, the redwood tree uh, that she named Luna. And I believe it was Julia Butterfly Hill who said, when we throw something away, where is a way? Yeah, it's really straight, isn't it? It really is. Mm-hmm. So, so, Kimberly, back to you and thoughts from you, please. Well, I think I kind of want to go back to that energy concept that everything has energy. And we, we talked about the minerals. We talked about animals. We talked about people. Um, one of the things that I've found over the years in, in all of my reading and my experiences is that many cultures believe that that, that same thing, that everything has energy, everything has some, some form of spirit within it. And that's couches, that's doorways, that's a house frame, that's even your, your, your table. And that got me thinking about the energy of what plastic is, the energy of what garbage is, because those things have their own, I guess, signature, their own tone in itself. And I, and I started thinking about, you know, what their role is. As, as we develop, as we evolve as a species of humans, we're always creating these new things. And, of course, one of the things that we've created and, and may or may not have really wanted to create was these plastic products. And they in themselves carry a very uh, dominating energy now on our planet, especially when we're worried about the, the future because they don't, they don't break down as easily as, as organic manner, matter as we know it. 
And I started really thinking about, okay, so if these things have their own energy now and we're just casting us aside, we're not necessarily acknowledging that energy. And it's building up around us to the point where maybe it needs to be acknowledged and, and we know that it needs to be acknowledged. And so how can we shift that? How can we shift this 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 concept of, of this energy. And I found um, in my research this amazing individual named Toby McCartney, who's an engineer who's figuring out a way to take these plastics that don't break down and turn them into something useful for people, for communities. And so he's figured out a way to break it down and actually pave roads that last longer and don't need as much, uh, I guess, care as some of the existing roads that we have. And and he's got a whole, uh, I guess, company that's developing these ways to reuse this plastic, these, these non-biodegradable items into things that can help our communities. And maybe that in itself can help shift the energy of what these, these stagnant plastics that are floating around hurting Gaia in all the various forms into something more positive. And that can shift our own existence here and our own uh, synergistic, uh, I guess, way of being. And I think that that's really exciting and, and it's, it's not limiting us as human beings. Like when we look at a sea filled with ocean, it's so heartbreaking, or uh, filled with, not filled with ocean, filled with plastic. It's so heartbreaking to see it all just floating out there. And then you see these children or communities from around the world going around and cleaning it up. And, and making use of it, turning it into something that we can positively influence uh, different spaces on this planet. And that's, that's the hope that I hold on to when we talk about that, that energy. Instead of seeing it as a negative, try to shift it. We have the power to shift that negative energy into a more positive one. Good point. And that shift, yeah, it is. And, and that shift has to occur on many different levels. It yes. has to occur in as much as I can here in the micro level in my own home every time I go to the grocery store, how much gasoline I use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we all know that. And, and then on a community level, I remember many years ago somebody suggested to our city council uh, in, in the city uh, nearest me that perhaps we should try community composting and city council just said, oh, no, that will never work in a city the size of, of our city. And the fellow said, you're probably right. He said, this, this came from San Diego. This idea came from San Diego, which is a considerably larger city than ours. Uh, so, you, you know, it's on a, on a meso level and certainly on a macro level in terms of policies and in terms of um, large-scale corporate mindsets that that also have to have some kind of a a change. I, I saw uh, along the same lines of what you were talking about, Kimberly. I saw a uh, thing on Facebook, I think, the other day about a, a coastal community in India that had cleaned the beaches to uh, the point that, and, and really had made a concerted community effort, and that sea turtles who had not been seen on that beach for many, many, many years had returned to lay their eggs. 
I saw that video. It was so inspiring. Wasn't it? Yeah, I know. So so there is uh, there is hope. Uh, the Toby McCartney fellow you were talking about did a YouTube, uh, not a YouTube, a TED Talk, What If We Talk Rubbish, I believe. Yes. Is that, yes. Am I really about that? And so I just, I love that. Um, well, I'll, I'll hush again. Susan, I haven't heard from you in a while. Do you have comments from you? Oh, I'm just, I'm just listening and learning and, and loving what I'm hearing. Um, I, I think we need to be aware of the systems around us, um, not, not just our own system of our, you know, of our body and, and, and so forth, but I think we need to be aware of the plant life around us. I think we need to be aware of the animal life around us. And I don't necessarily mean in our immediate vicinity either, although our own backyard, so to speak, is, is a good place to start. But the, the other life forms on this planet are suffering as well. Um, and, and I know we can't go backwards in time, although in my fantasy sometimes we do. That's not really practical, though. But as, as we go forward, we just really need to pay attention to what's going on and use our voices the best way we know how. Uh, thing, things, are, things are happening with Gaia. Um, as we go in and um, start to, to tear down existing forest systems, uh, viruses, for example, uh, Zika, Ebola, uh, yellow fever, th- those types of things come out of those forests because they have existed in that contained ecosystem for, you know, since time began probably, who knows how long. But once we go in and dismantle that ecosystem and those viruses come out into uh, an- another ecosystem that is not prepared to handle it on a biological level, then we have epidemics. So we, we as humans are really not quite the masters that we think we are of this, of this Gaia, of this, of this Gaia. So we just need to be aware, I think, that, that although we are sometimes walking around and thinking that, that we are the end-all and be-all, that we are the creation that was put here to uh, lord over this. Um, Guy's guy going to win in the end. She's bigger. She's smarter. She's, as, as we talked about, has all these individual systems in place, all these contained systems. And when we break into them, and, and bust them open where we humans are the ones that pay the price. And unfortunately, we are not the only ones who pay the price. Uh, we're certainly aware that, that the animals are suffering and, and the plants around us are disappearing at exponential rates. So not, not, to, not to cast the doom and gloom over this discussion at all, but pay attention, be aware, use your senses to find the truth of all of this. Read and, and listen and be aware and, um, and just, just do what you can. Use your knowledge. Share your knowledge. Act on your knowledge. What are the things that, 
that speaks to me about what I just heard you say, Susan, and, and, and we will continue to weave this concept I'm getting ready to talk about into almost all of our podcasts. But it's the, the notion of non-duality, of non-dualistic thinking, to go beyond right or wrong or black or white or uh, yes or no, but to be able to find uh, common ground and to be Mm -hmm. able to think broader than just uh, dualistic thinking. And and what, as you were talking, where I live on the coast, there is an ongoing controversy between the fishermen and the turtle people. And I use that word because uh, that's what many of the old local fishermen call folks who, in my world, are working very hard to save and protect sea turtles. And, and because of, of legislation, as I was talking earlier about the macro perspective, there's, there's been a tremendous amount of legislation that has curtailed much of the freedom and flexibility in the fishing industry in an attempt to protect the turtle. In fact, something called a turtle extruder was invented that's used now around the world by somebody in down east North Carolina uh, some years ago. And so, but, but it's, not, it's not black and white and it's not either or. It doesn't have to be the fishermen or the turtles. It, there could be common ground if we connect and communicate. If That's important, Deb. Yeah, it is. You're right. It, it really is. And I think it's that willingness to communicate and that willingness to connect that really will bring Gaia back into a state of homeostasis. Thoughts from any one of you? Well, you know, when I think about uh, entropy and homeostasis and, and I think about how our communities are are around the world and how people are. You're right. I I really liken a lot of my work to nature and animals. And I know that lions are not bad guys for eating zebras and zebras are not bad guys for defending themselves and hurting lions in that process of the circle of life. And what it boils down to is, is I think of images of lions and zebras sharing water you know, and right next to each other, standing right next to each other, sharing water because they respect each other. They respect that nature and life finds a way to exist. And when the time comes, there's a give and take. And that's what leads to that homeostasis. But the entropy happens when one grouping has to take, 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 take. And the other is is not necessarily meeting that. And, and so when I think of, of the, the turtle people where you are, Deb, and the fishermen, you know, I, I, I don't personally believe that it, it has to be one or the other. I do believe that there does need to exist a balance in every space. And it, it boils down to respect. It boils down to the communication, like you've said. Uh, it's, it's, it's people understanding and and getting into a space where they can understand and and know it's the knowledge it's the share of knowledge they can they can say you know what i may not live this way but there are others who do and i respect that and because i respect that i'm willing to share 
and that's, I guess, at the, the crux of a lot of the issues in the world as we see it today. But there are people out there who are making that possible now. There are people out there who are bridging all of that to create a more homeostatic type place in this world. So it's exciting for me to see that there exists people who are still learning, just like your friend who came to visit you who is like radio crystals and, and you know, <laughs> all of that. That's exciting to me because it tells me that there's still people still learning and still wanting to learn and wanting to listen. And, and that's huge. That's a huge leap for all of us as we move into the future. I, I agree with you, Kimberly, and it, it's a lot for me about uh, about respect, just as, as you have said, and it's about that willingness to entertain a notion and just sit with it. You don't have to believe it. In fact, I invite folks not to believe everything you hear uh, wholeheartedly until until you know what's, what really speaks to you and is, and is your truth, but to really think beyond duality. Joel, as Kimberly was talking, I was thinking about in your world and the wonderful commitment to green space that is a part of your um, town's um, policy on construction. Absolutely. That that's been done, you know. Go ahead, dear. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say absolutely. It, it is important. Um, it's It's one of those things where can you – I'm trying to think of an eloquent way to put it off the cuff, but if it was like your aging grandmother, if she was, you know, four and a half billion years old and started getting <laughs> this cancer that was appearing, what sort of environment would you set up for her to heal? Would it be an environment where only 30% of the land mass on your planet that's available for seven and a half billion people with wars and hate and anger and that sort of thing, that's not very conducive to healing. But if you have an environment where it's loving and that's the energies that you're putting out there and you're trying to make a difference and trying to heal her and trying to watch your carbon footprint, those are the things that make that possible. And if you're really talking about the only place that we have to live, what's the harm, right? What would be the harm at looking at her as a living being versus this thing, just a, a rock floating in space? I think one lends more towards a compassionate groundwork for continually to help her heal and educate ourselves and sustain ourselves and the rest of the components of our biosphere that make it all possible for us to live, it's, it's really a better way to go. And so I, I just had the thought when, when – I'm sorry, Deb. <laughs> go go ahead, Susan. I just had the thought when, when Joel said uh, something about helping her heal, and I thought, oh, my gosh, as she heals – we heal. Yeah. Because she is us and we are her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the thing that when I was reading a little bit, the thing that impacted me the most is our greatest impact to the planet is within the biosphere, that of the deepest, the area, the deepest roots of the trees, um, up up into the atmosphere, I guess about 62, maybe not even that far, like 12 miles up is where it mostly sustains life. That's, that's also where we have 
our biggest impact from a devastation tam- standpoint. So it's it's interesting when you think about the area that we the the areas that we have complete accessibility to. We have the biggest impact to from a destruction, and also have the greatest impact potential impact for healing. Yes. 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 True. I remember, folks, as we were preparing for for this show, and I was uh, this episode, and I was saying, well, how how high up is, is do we count as being part of Mother Earth uh, within that sphere uh, in the air above us? And I said to Susan, imagine standing on top of uh, Mount Everest with me, and how and how much higher is that? And so, you know, you give us that that great visual there, Joel, of of thinking in terms of how much higher we go uh, when we think of Earth and and how we impact air and water and land and all the beings therein. Uh, and we're going to be talking in the next week or so, folks, about water specifically and how that relates to this concept of of all of us being connected. So water is coming, as we've been talking about Gaia as a a planet, and a living being in and of herself. We are almost out of time, folks. We have about three minutes left. Is there anything that one of you would like to to point out or say that we haven't gotten to? I just want to say thank you to everybody who's listening. And not just thank you because they're listening, but thank you for being out there and wanting to tune in to concepts like this so that you can go home, meet out with your people, and talk about it to keep healing this planet. Thank you to them. That's what I want to say thank you to. <laughs> I love it, Kimberly. Thank Very you. Very good. Yeah, I think, we, I think that's a great note to end on. Folks, thank you, as Kimberly says, for listening to us, for being a part of this quest, for connecting. We are, we are very grateful. Kimberly Fox Kaufman, Joel Hawkins, Susan Bollinger, and I, Deb Bowen, your anchor host, are so delighted and honored that you are on this quest with us. And we hope that you will keep questing and keep doing as Kimberly has suggested, and we will be back with you next week. So in the meantime, have a great week, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.